0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And you can probably tell by my audio quality, I'm on the road, but my gum-chewing indicates I'm not in Singapore.
1: Ugh. Chewing and spitting. That's a double dose of lashing in Singapore.
0: And I bet you guys didn't know this was going to be a ASMR episode. So uh, Josh is also going to talk about a beautiful and desolate masterpiece of a game. This is the kind of content that is so epic, Josh isn't just trying to sell you on playing the game, he is using this game to sell you on gaming in general. It's The Last of Us, Part 2.
1: Movies, shows, and video games. Podcasts, books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become a
0: And It starts right now. Brett. What's up, buddy? How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm hanging awesome. out in San Antonio, Texas.
1: Yeah? Are you, uh, you working?
0: I don't know what I'm doing here. I was hoping you would tell me.
1: <laughs> well, from what I hear, you're not doing a whole lot. I do hear a little bit of lip smacking going on over there. Doesn't seem very professional podcaster of you. All
0: right, there's gum? Yeah, What's chewing
1: about? gum while you're podcasting.
0: Oh, I thought this was America, a free country.
1: <laughs> it is. I mean, I guess you can do whatever you want. Ultimately, the freedom it kind of ends where annoying our listeners begins.
0: Hmm. All right. I guess I'll. Uh, I guess I'll uh, take it out.
1: Oh, that's very uh, <laughs> Canadian of you.
0: <laughs> There's so a point. what's new, man? There's a point to that bit. It's for my is off-top. there now. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, let's definitely, uh, let's put a pin in it because I want to hear about your, uh, your experiences this week.
0: We're just way too busy, man.
1: Too busy, man.
0: We're just, (laughs) we're (laughs) just, I can't even talk even with the gum out of my mouth. I was on, (laughs) I was stuck on an airplane for like 10 hours today. Oh, man. Had to divert to Houston because of weather and then get fuel. I I was just a passenger, so I didn't have to do a whole lot except, um, you know, complain in my mind's eye.
1: So flying on airplanes is like like the uh, your my back of this podcast?
0: Yeah, exactly. Nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you're just going to be sitting around in a hotel room hoping to get some of that sweet, sweet professional flying in the next few days then?
0: Yeah, we'll see how things go. I, um, I was supposed to be flying a trip like a 6 a.m. departure tomorrow, so it was going to be like, you know, 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m. wake-ups, Uh, for the next like five days, but I'm just checked my schedule before we started our podcast and I might not even be flying in for like another four
1: days, but we shall see. Man, Man, what a waste of a trip. (laughs) Hopefully you get some, uh, get some flying in because otherwise what's the point?
0: You know, I'm still on, uh, I'm still technically in training because my first trip was It's called IOE, Initial Operations Experience. So you go out with a qualified Czech airman. It's not just a normal captain. They're also, uh, they have like a a letter from the FAA. They're a designated, um, they're not a designated examiner, but they're a Czech airman. And my last week that I was out, I only got two days of flying in. So I, you know, I didn't even meet the minimum hours that I would need to get signed off. And um, I got six landings in, but... Only ten hours doesn't make the cut. I think I have to get twenty five hours minimum.
1: Do you have like a minimum amount of landings you need to get in before you're fully certified? Uh
0: I don't think company? I don't think landings. Um, I think it's just an hour minimum and then just a couple requirements, a couple boxes they have to check. And uh, you know, they have to make sure that you're comfortable and they feel good about you going and flying with any old captain.
1: Um so, but, like, comfortable, like they want to make sure that the temperature is right for you in the cockpit. Correct. And that you feel like snuggly. Exactly. Wow, this sounds like a really cush job you've got, Brett. They really care about you. Yeah, you sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made, uh, I made some big moves this week in the uh, realm of content consumption or things that will allow me to consume more content, actually. Oh, did I, you uh,
0: finally spring for the Neuralink uh, beta testing?
1: I wish just me and that pig were the two testers. Uh, But what I, what I've been trying to get a an Xbox Series X for forever, pretty much. I mean, they've been completely backordered. There's been shortages on parts. They're almost impossible to get. But uh, one of my friends, Lamar, shout out to Lamar, who I used to work at the wind tunnel with, he performed some like Twitter foo, and he basically like he, he used all these all these Twitter connections to track like when these new systems are coming onto the market. And uh, he was able to get one of these extremely rare Xboxes that almost no one can get at this point. And uh, it came in the mail yesterday. So I got a brand new Xbox Series X, which is like top of the line as far as video games go. And I realized the very first day my eight year old TV is not up to the task of keeping up with this thing. So I went and bought a brand new 4K TV as well. Oh, very nice. It's going to really up my. Uh, it's Basically, I didn't get this contentology degree just so I could sit around and look at crappy video games. No, so you need I'm, tax write offs, man. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when I'm paying off my student loans, It just, it makes me feel like I'm doing something with my life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. What is a Twitter foo?
1: It's like Kung Fu, but with Twitter. Okay. Pretty much.
0: Never heard of that before.
1: I just invented it just now. Huh. Okay.
0: So can I add foo to anything?
1: You can. Yeah, exactly. Gum gum foo, like earlier when you were chewing gum. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of gum foo, what do you have for your off top?
0: Well, actually, um, I'm talking a little bit about Singapore. Interesting. Are, yeah. Are you
1: familiar with Singapore? I know it's a place that exists, but I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what's going on currently in the world there or what you're getting at.
0: Well, you're uh, yeah, you're not wrong. It is a place. It does exist. So it's uh, just this tiny little, um, it's a city state. It's not quite a country. I think the term is city state. It's on the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, which is basically, it's the west section of Malaysia near Vietnam, Cambodia. But it's super unique. It's a sovereign island city-state. It's also one of the most densely populated islands in the world. And it is also one of the most uh, advanced, cutting-edge, beautiful cities that I have ever seen and probably exists. It is definitely like a technological utopia from sci-fi. I mean, it is an incredible urban environment.
1: Interesting. You've been there, like you've flown there for work or something?
0: You know, I I never flew there for work, but when I was flying to Asia a lot for work, uh, Brie and I kind of squeezed it into our Asia travels. We did a a trip together and visited Japan. and um, So that was back in early 2018. So, yeah, we... And actually, the reason that we went to Singapore... Was because of this, the, it was the last episode of the Planet Earth Two series with uh, David Attenborough, and that uh, season or that I guess that you know that episode was all about cities, and it featured so the
1: City Monkeys. Um,
0: no the the monkeys the the like uh, what do you call them? Out of the Snow Monkeys, those, that was actually in Japan, oh, but we gotcha. we we did go there as well, but. The super tree grove was what was featured heavily in the oh, city episode. Yes, mm-hmm. and the the super trees. I mean, that could be straight out of a sci fi. But I, I mean, the gardens by the bay, which is where the super tree grove is at, the marina. I mean, it is. I mean, it really does look like you are stepping into like a video game. Um, but I am actually not going to talk about all that cool stuff. I am going to talk about some of their laws because uh, all of the really awesome stuff aside. One of the little facts about Singapore that seems to stick with people, especially in the West, is their law against chewing gum. (laughs) Oh, interesting. (laughs) Now, I I guess you hadn't heard of this. Um, And it, it has changed a little bit. They've lifted the restriction starting in 2004. So there is an exception for therapeutic, dental, and nicotine chewing gum. It has to be bought from a doctor or a registered pharmacist. Um so it's not illegal to chew gum in Singapore, but it is illegal to import it and to sell it aside from those medical exemptions that I uh, mentioned.
1: That is bizarre. Is it about is it something about like they don't want it on the sidewalk? They don't want it like messing up the beautiful city or something like that?
0: Well, actually it started with the country's first prime minister. So Singapore became independent in 1965 and uh, Lee Kuan Yew, um, he's kind of the, the prime minister. He's kind of the, the guy that was responsible for this gun ban. Now being a really small city state, they didn't really have a lot of resources. So he wanted to aim for perfection basically. I mean, he wanted to make Singapore like a force to be reckoned with. Um, so some of the other laws that seem, especially to Westerners like us, pretty rigid. I mean, like almost draconian, uh, littering, graffiti, jaywalking, spitting, uh, urinating anywhere, but in a toilet, not flushing the toilet is against the law in a public place now
1: against the law. That's crazy. (laughs)
0: Like, I'm not really like. You know, I'm kind of for all those things, except if you break the law there. I mean, take gum chewing, for an example. You are looking at heavy fines, jail time. And if you commit a more serious offense, like, I mean, if, if you uh, steal something, you might actually be publicly caned. Corporal punishment is a thing in Singapore.
1: Is this where I remember years ago uh, it was an American that like graffitied a car and he was, Did that happened in Singapore.
0: Yes, actually. Um, it wasn't Singapore. He was uh, an American kid. He was like, I don't know. Um, I didn't have this in my notes, but I, I, I am a little bit familiar with this. I think he was like 18 years old and he, and he spray painted a bunch of cars and Bill Clinton was the president at the time. And he was supposed to get like six lashes Six whippings in the public and because of, I don't know, Clinton put pressure on the Singapore government and he only got four lashes, if I remember correctly.
1: Oh, I'm sure his ass really appreciated that. (laughs) You know what? I I bet they do not have a bunch of misbehaving miscreants in that city. I, I bet if you grew up in that city, you are extremely well behaved because, man, lashing. It seems like, oh, yeah, you're getting a paddling, but I would imagine that they are like ripping you to pieces with that cane. Does not sound pleasant.
0: Well, I, I did go down a uh, rabbit hole back when I was traveling to Asia a lot, and Brie and I went to Singapore. And they actually have like a medical team there that's making sure that th- they're not going to do any permanent damage. They have you like hooked up to an IV and like a lot of sensors. I mean, they put a lot of. Effort into making sure that this is like more of a public shaming and you know quick uh, painful experience, but something that's not going to do like lasting physical damage or anything like that. But you know this this uh, Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew he wanted to turn the city state into uh, a first world oasis in a third world region. So cleanliness, clipped lawns, efficient transportation, and so gum was really getting in the way of the, the last thing I mentioned, the, the transportation. Literally, discarded gum was gumming up the works. It was blocking sensors for trains. It was getting caught up in the subway doors. And so that the, the uh, gum ban kind of came to fruition in 92. Um, and so the reason I'm bringing all this up, I was listening to a wonderful Sam Harris podcast episode. Uh, he interviews michelle gilfond she's a professor of psychology she's all about culture and uh, so the episode is uh number 248 and i i'm just using my whole off top to try to get you to subscribe to sam harris's <laughs> podcast
1: brett i was subscribed for a long time my subscription just ran out i've listened to a lot of sam harris i just well, don't listen to it whenever this one out. when i'm driving yeah I, <laughs> yes. I, lo- I love Sam Harris. I just don't listen to him while I'm driving. I think that you may have gotten the the wrong idea about my uh, my opinion on Sam Harris, but I think he's a genius and I love his take on the world.
0: Well, I do know that he uh, puts you to sleep. so <laughs> I, everybody <laughs> thanks you for your sacrifice. Um, but the episode, it's basically about tight cultures versus loose cultures. And so a tight culture, I mean Singapore is like a perfect example of this or Japan. I mean it's more orderly. There's a high level of self-regulation. Um, they did this like really interesting study where people had weird face tattoos or they put like facial warts on people and they'd go around in public asking for help. And uh, a tight culture is less likely to offer assistance. So even though they you know they have uh, lower crime, cleaner cities, Um, there's, there are downsides to a tight culture, whereas a loose culture, they, they do struggle with order. They have, um, a higher crime rate, but they're also more creative. They're more tolerant. They're much more open. So they're more likely to help you out with all, uh, you know, the facial warts (laughs) stuck onto your face for this weird chestnut, (laughs) right?
1: I've Uh, actually heard a little bit about that too, about, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, America is like a, would you call it a loose, co- what was it? Tight and.
0: It was tight versus
1: loose. Tight and loose. Like America's a loose culture. I think whenever I was, uh, when I heard about it, they were referring to Germany as a tight culture. And it had to do with um, adherence to laws when they came to, like something like the, uh, like the COVID restrictions. Like mm-hmm. America was less likely to follow the COVID restrictions because of our, the looseness of our culture and it's a little bit more about personal freedom. And then places like Germany may have fared a little bit better in the beginning because they had a tight culture and they're more accepting of, uh, you know, when, when a when a law is passed or when a rule is made, like they just accept it as part of the, the way of life. And that's, uh, I think that's kind of the context that I've heard that referred to in.
0: Yeah. And you know, they, she does kind of mention that there is a balance in every culture. Um, like some things will be tight. Some things will be loose within that same culture. And she said, you have to have that balance. I mean, Japan, you know, there's high rigidity, uh, there's high, high, self-regulation, but then you can let loose when you're drinking with your boss because it's a, you know, it's a social norm and it's accepted. Um, but I think kind of her argument is that it would, benefit us all to become more ambidextrous given various situations so we could pivot and maybe be tight when we should be tight, be loose when we should be loose because there's advantages to these. And, um, you know, Sam Harris used kind of this um, metaphor that culture is like an operating system. And the interesting thing was is culture, you know, there's culture within like a school and then there's culture within like a corporate organization there's culture within a country of course it's kind of this invisible like very obvious but also not very tangible thing and it kind of can scale up and it can scale down and it's kind of like this fractal of um, you know human experience but on that though the the part that I found really interesting was that these tight cultures and their rules tended to come from some sort of threat. Like if there's a, if there's a threat facing a place, they're more likely to move towards having a tight culture. And it could be, you know, mother nature, it could be a historical threat of like invasion from a nearby country. Um, And then you have, you know, less threat, and you tend to have looser cultures. So Singapore I guess was an example of this. I mean, they have lots of threats. Um, There's over 21,000 people per square mile. So there's threat of, you know, uh, viruses, disease spreading very quickly, all kinds of things. So that is a lot. They do not want to, you know, they don't don't want gum to screw up their (laughs) super nice transportation system. So um, if you travel there, don't bring your gum, hate to burst your bubble. Uh, don't forget to flush the toilet. Good uh, gum pun, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, definitely check it out. I mean, Singapore is, it is next level incredible. And I, maybe I, uh, I don't know, I, I see a theme and like how much I love Japan and how, how much I enjoyed Singapore. Maybe I hope that uh, a place like the US will just uh, tighten up a little bit, just tighten up.
1: Well, do you think that it's possible with the size of our population? I've heard a lot of issues that we have as far as like, well, like, I guess going back to the COVID response, you know, like that it was almost impossible for America to adopt some of the same uh, responses that somewhere, you know, like. Sweden made or something because the population is so big. And I think that like, as the population gets bigger unless something like a very draconian system, like the Chinese communist system is employed, it's almost impossible to tightly control that many people. And maybe it's, maybe it's easier when you have such an isolated and small sample size like you do in Singapore. And no doubt it makes like, for an amazing place, but I don't know if that model would work on the scale that the U S functions on.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I I don't know. I feel like a lot of the the points that were made about Singapore is more to do with their population density and not the size of their population. Um, They talk about the um, COVID restrictions a little bit on the podcast, and it seems like it's a bit of a conundrum because usually conservatives are tend to be a more tight culture within this looser culture of freedoms. Um, however, in this case, it was mostly conservatives that were kind of antithetical to the tightness of like masks. Like there, there tends to be more of a culture of uh, fear driving choices. And, but instead, that fear has, it kind of lent itself to becoming not afraid of the virus uh, and, you know, dispelling of wearing masks, but actually, like, becoming more afraid of a vaccine instead yeah. of the actual virus. So, they talk a little bit about it on the podcast. Um, I guess the tightness in the conservative culture comes a little bit more from following the leader. And so, if there had been some leadership that had some more sensible, you um, Directions for their for their followers.
1: Wait, are you faulting our leadership during the COVID response, Brett? That does not sound like something you would do.
0: I you know, it was just it was textbook perfect. So I
1: what <laughs> that's what I would say too. You heard it here first, folks. I think But at least I, I can think chew my the, damn gum. Exactly. I think one of the issues that's here and maybe why it doesn't fall into like those perfect Norms, like what you would expect from a tighter, loose culture, is that so much of what happens today is politicized and just to a completely detrimental degree. It's like you know, if one side of the the political system latches onto a certain idea, the other side will instantly oppose it, even if it doesn't make any logical sense. And you know, it's like why you see issues with vaccines. Like clearly, the vaccine, I mean. I'm not a doctor, I'm a, I'm a doctor of content, but from all of the research, the vaccine is a very good thing that was, you know, the, the process of it getting like fast-tracked and being created was an amazing human accomplishment. And then to have one side or the other for political reasons saying that, you know, the, the vaccine is some kind of conspiracy, it just doesn't have anything to do with logic at all. It's all about just battling. It's like, you know, the, the division along the political lines has caused so much fighting in this country that honestly could be so avoidable. And I agree. I I think it's really sad to see what politics are doing to the world that we live in today.
0: You know, I think there's a lot of tightness on the left too, that is creating like a similar issue. Just to just to make it clear, I'm not picking on one side or the other. Like I think it's really difficult to have, um, you know, these subcultures within a culture that are so different. And that's like this is the importance of culture, right? Like if you look at two brains, they're physically going to be identical. You put those two different identical brains into different cultures, the, the it's going to be the environment. It's going to be the culture that most likely shapes the vast you know majority of what your values are and your beliefs so that is really the importance of culture i mean it is everything
1: yeah and i think w- what i think is really interesting about what's happening with like politics now is that all you hear about is the extreme ends of the scale like far right far left but i don't know a single person that falls into really either one of those categories I know people that are like somewhere on the scale of right, somewhere on the scale of left, but almost no one is at the far extremes and the far extremes, I think on any scale is where logic starts to break down. Like when you get to the the far extreme of anything, that's where you start getting into like the very tight, rigid adherence to all the rules that someone else set. And most people, even if they buy into some of these concepts, most people that I know don't fully buy into everything just because their political party says that's what they should do. And I think that's like, part of that is the way that it's presented in the media. You know, like all you hear about is the ends of the scale because that's what's quote unquote interesting according to the media these days. And I think that that's probably also painting a picture that may not be entirely true for the mass majority of people living their normal lives.
0: Well, if you find yourself Um, Trying to storm a government building during an election. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you might be an extremist.
1: Go chew some gum, guy. (laughs) Well, that's really interesting, man. Uh, I always love hearing about your world travels. You're so much more worldly than I am, and you've seen all these crazy things. I, I hope to visit some of these places one day, but. For now, I have to settle with living vicariously through your experiences.
0: I will save you a seat on my next flight to San Antonio, Texas, baby. Uh, If I'm just going to be sitting around (laughs) doing
1: nothing, I'll stay at home and do that exact same thing. (laughs) So what's on your content circuit besides uh, watching the navigation panel on the back of the screen in the airplane?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, besides that one Sam Harris episode i actually didn't have anything for my content circuit uh it's just been such a busy crazy week but thanks to my flight delay i did finally get to watch the first episode of money heist this was a um, recommendation from dv uh it's a foreign uh netflix original it is very good i'm already super hooked into it so if i
1: i love subtitles i have to check that out
0: i know you do yeah, it seems like a really well uh, kind of shot and acted, and th- the lighting is really good, which is a weird thing for me to notice. But
1: that is—it's that's contentology speaking right there. It's—it just seems high quality. Like I'm,
0: I, you know, got a personal recommendation from a fan of the show that doesn't recommend very many things. So you know, your ears perk up when somebody's like, "This is seriously awesome. You should check this out." And if I get more uh, flights canceling that I'm supposed to be flying, I'd. I get the chance to watch episode two. All right. Well, uh,
1: <laughs> if you watch the whole thing and it's great, you should bring it to the show and talk about it. Maybe I will. What's nice. on your content circuit? Man, I have been inundated with too many good books lately. So there is a, a a lot of books in series that I've read in the past. A lot of new books have come out recently. Like um, I talked about The Terminal List by Jack Carr way back in the beginning of this show. And the fourth book just came out called The Devil's Hand, which is, I'm, re- I'm reading that right now. It is so good. Um, uh, another author I like, Marco Cluse. he's like a sci-fi author and he writes the Frontline series, which is kind of like a Space Marine style story. And I think it's the seventh book just came out to that. But the big one, which I haven't got to yet, but this was actually recommended to me by... Uh, the host, uh, David, from the Don't Assume podcast that I appeared on. Mm-hmm. Did you know that there is a Ready Player Two novel that is already out?
0: Yeah. I, I feel like I read it and it wasn't as good as Ready Player One. Oh, no. It's been I out mean, for a it'd couple years, it be hard to right? follow
1: that up. I guess. I didn't know about it, but I just downloaded it because now it's it's like in the purest sense of the definition of the term that we made up. It's on my content circuit. It's something that's going to be cycling through soon. So I haven't no, got to it yet.
0: Well, shoot. I I don't mean to uh, you know hurt any Spoiler enthusiasm alert. that you have. I I don't honestly I don't remember anything about the plot. I just remember texting a friend of mine that Ready Player 2 was not as good as Ready Player 1. Oh, no. That's man. all I remember. Well, <laughs> now I I've loved, got that I loved Ready back Player 1 head. so much that I uh, you know I think I read it immediately when it when a second when a sequel came out.
1: Yeah, it's really good. It's going to be hard to follow that up, but I am mm-hmm. looking forward to reading it, even if it is not the greatest thing ever because I do really like that universe and I'd like to spend some more time mm-hmm. there.
0: Definitely. You mean the the universe that's uh, just around the corner?
1: Just a few years away. Yep. Once this Oculus tech I got sitting on my desk advances, <laughs> just a few more generations, we can yeah. let the whole world go to shit and just live in VR.
0: <laughs> you know what I invested in, actually, as a seed investor? GameStock? Uh well that was just as a normal shareholder no so this was um it wasn't a public offering but uh, it's a company called Seed Invest so it's like a Kickstarter of investing but it was the Omni uh, VR treadmill oh nice yeah I have cool. uh, I've got a couple of shares of that in a non-public company I I've believe got a little in bit extra future of that floor tech
1: room. Yeah. <laughs> a little extra floor room in my nerdarium, I could plop one of those down.
0: Well, I, I think as an investor, when it uh, is made available to the public, I get a pretty hefty discount for that. Nice. And I'm I don't have any to you. room for it. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can hook you up. Perfect. All right, let's take a quick break. And then uh, when we get back, we'll get into some content.
1: Ooh, content. Hello listeners. Don't hit the skip forward button just yet. This is not an ad. This is a call for you guys and gals to get involved with the show. So we want to hear from you about
0: your favorite pieces of content and why they're the best. Or you can even tell us if you've checked out a piece of content because we recommended it and uh, if you loved it or not. So contact us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com or on Instagram or Facebook at the contentclearinghouse. And we will read your letters on the air right here. Thanks so much for listening. We love you guys. Okay, back to the show. Ooh, content.
1: Clear it
0: out. All right, welcome back to the content clearinghouse. Josh, I took the gum out of
1: my mouth and my ears in preparation <laughs> for this episode. Nice. Very Singaporean of you. So, Brett, as we usually do, I'm going to start off with a question here. How often do you run across a piece of content that you think sits at the very top of the pile for a particular category? Like the greatest movie or show or book and not like The (laughs) Godfather, which is, it's a very popular answer, but I also feel like it's a total cop-out because I don't really think anybody considers that to be their favorite movie. Like your own personal choice. How often? Yeah, like... It can't be very often because there's only a few no. categories, but can right, you think sure. of anything that like the greatest book you've ever read?
0: Hmm. I would have to think about it for a while, but yeah, I mean, I definitely have those moments where like a sapiens moment where I'm like, this is the greatest
1: thing I've ever read. It happens yeah, for sure. It's a hard question. Like I didn't realize how hard that question is. And I also didn't realize that I was selecting something like that until I was over a weekend outlining this. Oh, wow. So today, I'm talking about a game, which is one of our more underrepresented categories on this show. I think the lowest representation would be other podcasts. But games, I think we've only had like maybe four or five games ever on this show. And the game that I'm talking about, it may not be my personal favorite game of all time, although it is very high on my list, but I think it represents the highest expression of this art form. This game is a place where artistry, writing, animation, game mechanics, and vision all meet in this place that's beyond gaming and it like it steps into the realm of true human expression. And this game is an example of what humans are capable of and it is both beautiful and ugly. You might even say it's a little disgusting. But I'm talking about The Last Wait. of Us, part two. Oh, I was gonna guess snake. Oh yeah, you were <laughs> so close. Yeah, you know, I'm talking about The Last of Us Part Two. And I mean, apparently I've got a thing for part twos. I've talked about The Purge, the second season. I've also talked a little bit on the content circuit about Wolf Creek season two. Something about those season two part twos that really speaks to me. But well, maybe to Ready Player Two
0: is gonna be right up your
1: alley then. Maybe it will. Maybe I'll just blow all your expectations out of the water and I'll just think that it's so much better than the first.
0: It'll be the Empire Strikes Back of books.
1: Exactly. So to understand this game, you do need to know the backstory. So I'm gonna talk about some things that happened in the first game. I'm gonna I'm not gonna go into many spoilers at all for the second game because the story is so amazing, but the synopsis of the story that leads up to The Last of Us Part 2 is that in late September 2013, a strain of the real life fungus, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, which I did practice saying began to spread amongst the human population of the United States. So uh, cordyceps is an insect fungal infection known to affect the behavior in ants. It causes them to leave their hive and crawl up to higher uh, elevations in the jungle to reach an area that's more suitable for fungal growth. And this infection leads to the death of the ant and causes these fruiting bodies to grow from its head. And these fruiting bodies eventually rain down upon the hive to further the infection. This has been observed in nature to destroy entire ant colonies. And in the game, the cordyceps infection is spread by either breathing in spores of the fungus or by direct contact with the infected in which bodily fluid is exchanged. So basically zombies in the span of a few months, 60% of the world's population is either dead or infected.
0: I have, I have actually seen video of this on uh, planet earth I don't remember. Oh, it's, it must be the insects episode because I, I, I don't remember if they had a fungus episode, but uh, it is some of the craziest footage I have ever seen on a documentary series that's, you know, it's only comprised of crazy footage and the sped up shots of the ants like losing their shit and then dying and then a literal like plant growing out of their head or a fungus, I guess is, it's wild so
1: disturbing. It really is. And it's a great concept for a video game enemy. So this fungus, it spreads to the host's brain. It starts to alter their behavior. It eventually grows out of their head and blinds them in the game. And uh, the story of the first game follows Joel who is a survivor who lost his daughter on day one of the outbreak. And then Ellie is a 14-year-old survivor with an immunity to the infection, which is extremely rare, completely unheard of in this world. And Joel is tasked with protecting her. So the, throughout the course of the game, Joel pretty much does anything necessary to keep her safe. And in the end, they develop this surrogate father-daughter relationship. And then The Last of Us Part 2 takes place five years later and deals with the fallout from the original game. So Part 2 is a tale of revenge that spans hundreds of miles across the U.S. And it shows the remnants of this fallen world and leaves hundreds or maybe even thousands of humans dead in its wake. And one of the most impressive things about this game is its realistic portrayal of the relationship between Joel and Ellie. So Joel and Ellie, for people that know anything about video games, they know that they are these very beloved characters in the world of video games, and part of that is this believable relationship between the two of them. And although they are not related, the traumatic experiences they go through in the first game bonds them in a very believable way. So this surrogate father-daughter relationship takes dozens of hours to fully develop, and by the conclusion of the first game, it feels entirely earned, and it feels like you're truly peering into real people's lives, which is an extremely rare experience in a game. I'd say most video game protagonists or even characters at all fall into like these very cliché designs. And what's really interesting about these characters is even like their, ga- their game models, they don't look like video game characters. They look like real people. And if you just look at the model, which is like you know the, the 3D sculpt of the character, if you look mm-hmm. at it outside, outside of the game world, it actually looks kind of boring because they just look like you're looking at pictures of humans. But then when you play them in the game, there's something just like... They just seem real, like you can almost reach out and touch them, which is also... Very rare in games because, you know, the graphics are very understated. They're realistic, but they're not like, they're not flashy in any way, which is, again, very rare for games. So uh, in Ellie, Joel finds a replacement for his lost daughter, Sarah, who, like I said, was killed the first day of the infection. And in Joel, Ellie finds this loving role model, which is something that's clearly missing in this world. They save each other's, they save each other's lives dozens of times, and a few keynote events from the first game truly cement this relationship. So at the beginning of part two, you kind of get the feeling that their relationship is starting to strain. It's partially due to things that happen in the story uh, before the game starts. but it's also due to Ellie like growing up a bit, like she's 19 years old at the beginning of the story. And anyone who has ever been a teenager, knows that teenagers typically drift away from their parents as they start to gain more independence. They start to question their elders. They're always thinking that they could have made better decisions. Like this is very real. And again, it's something that games have never tackled before in my experience, and I've been playing them for 30 years. And this strained yet loving relationship between the two of them is a huge driving force behind the story of of part two, of The Last of Us, which is again, a brutal revenge tale that it it goes from Wyoming to Seattle, like you you travel across the entire U.S.
0: What are they taking revenge against the fungus?
1: Well, you'll have to play the game <laughs> to figure that out, Brett. That's one of the spoilers I will not be telling here.
0: When I finally get the the means to re up my video gaming lifestyle, uh, I have a lot of catching up to do. I'm probably gonna have to take like a three month hiatus, uh, leave of absence from work and just bury myself in our basement of our house that we're going to build one day and then just don't even knock on this door until I walk out with a handful of video games to return to
1: GameStop. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly how you feel. That's what I wish I could do every day of my life, Brett. Bury myself in the basement and play video games. But a major factor in all of this is the development studio and the game's director. So it was developed by Naughty Dog, who are, they're like the highest pedigree of video games. And the game was directed by Neil Druckmann. And this uh, this guy, Neil Druckmann, he started as a programming intern at Naughty Dog in 2003. And then in 2005, he wanted to join the design team and management told him that as long as he completed design assignments on his own time, they would consider his work. So he's basically doing unpaid design work to try to get to work his way up the ladder. And of course they loved his work. It's amazing. And he moved into design from 2005 to 2009. So he really started to gain attention though in 2010 and he was promoted to creative director. And that's where he proposed the first, the last of us game. So while preparing to direct the first game, he took acting classes so he could speak uh, the language that the game's actors were going to be using. And he took this ambitious approach of creating the game, directed the entire thing as if it were like a mocap movie, like how avatar was created. And he was eventually promoted to vice president of naughty dog, which is so awesome. Like I love seeing like a true meritocracy at work. And it doesn't surprise me that naughty dog works this way because every game they've ever created is pretty much like top tier as far as what video games have accomplished.
0: This reminds and, me of the, uh, the, I think he was like a janitor and he invented the flaming hot Cheetos oh, or yeah, something like that, but he actually got credit for the idea. They didn't just steal the idea from him and they, he became like an executive board member of marketing or something.
1: Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, that's like, that's the way the world should work. And I love hearing stories like that. That's so cool. Definitely. So Neil Druckmann made the perfect casting choices. Uh, he cast an actress named Ashley Johnson as Ellie, and this guy Troy Baker as Joel. And these two names have become synonymous with greatness in video games these days. Like these guys have gone and done a lot of other voice voiceover projects. But uh, the, the two of them like really embody these characters. Now, The, the Last of Us Part Two is released in June 2020 during the height of the corona pandemic. And it has the official title of the most awarded game in history with 231 awards and 93% on Metacritic. Wow. So needless to say, for anyone in the know, I don't have to sell you this game. So this is for people who may not be into video games. I'm not just trying to sell the idea of The Last of Us Part Two to you. I am pushing the idea of games in general, which is something that I've never done before other than... All the other times I've championed for video <laughs> games because I love them. I was going to
0: say, I feel like you've been <laughs> like the greatest advocate for video gaming uh, ever since you touched your first video game console. That's like oh, all we did when we lived ever. together. We played so many video games. It was the greatest times of my
1: life. <laughs> I agreed, But for someone who may not play games, I really think that The Last of Us Part Two is a reason to pick up a PS4, or a PS5 if you can find one they are impossible to find and start playing video games just so you, you can experience something like this.
0: And folks, buy your video games
1: from GameStop. This is uh,
0: unpaid Brett advertisement. needs that stock bump.
1: <laughs> now, I, I describe this game, I remember having this thought when I was playing it the first time, as Beautiful Desolation. Like, this game is so realistic. Like, on my first playthrough, I seriously paused, like, every 30 seconds or so to use the incredibly deep photo mode to document the world. I would remove all the game characters from my photos and I would simply capture the effects of 25 years of uh, a world without man. Like every uh, uh, every ivy-covered apartment room or like overgrown highway or dilapidated high-rise, it all just feels so natural. I spent a ridiculous amount of time in this game just galloping around on my horse through these wind-blown snow-covered meadows just to see the way the snow would collapse under the horse's feet and you know this is this is the kind of game that begs you to take your time with it like they crafted all these little bespoke animations like when you bump into a tree that it causes all the snow to fall off the branches or you can see the the ice cracking under your feet when you're walking across like a frozen pond and they created this entire physics-based system. It, it's, it, it was created explicitly for this game. It allows you to coil up rope and throw it under or over or around obstacles. It's a system that that's used in this extremely organic puzzle solving that they built into the game. There's no cheesy, like, collect this random thing and use it to unlock this door over here. All the problem solving has, like, a real-world analog. And it's the kind of thing you do to actually find a way to traverse through these environments. If they were real, like the logic of the real world applies very well to their video game. And while you're doing all this, you're also collecting like all these little handwritten notes. They tell these painful stories of all the world's lost inhabitants, or you are also collecting what amounts to like Marvel cards. They're these little superhero cards strewn all over the world that Ellie's obsessed with. And it's like any teenager might be you know you're looking for an escape from this PTSD inducing nightmare world that you're living in, and each one of these has artwork and a story that serves no other purpose than other just make the the world feel real and alive or uh, real and lived in, even if the world is mostly dead.
0: that's awesome how So how old is Ellie or her character in this?
1: She's 19 in this game.
0: okay. And that's, I, it's one of my favorite things about um, apocalyptic entertainment is the landscapes. I think we'd all love to, I don't know, it's just interesting to imagine what places would look like uh, if they were just abandoned for decades. Like even pictures of like Chernobyl are just so fascinating. I remember one of Bree and I's favorite times in Vale was actually in shoulder season when You know, no tourists were there. The ski resort is empty. The town is empty, and we just had a great time because it felt like the apocalypse. Like the weather was kind of not very nice. It was kind of cloudy and overcast, and uh, it just feels like it can transform the same place you've been to a hundred times because there's no people there.
1: Yeah, that is awesome. That reminds me a little bit of uh, once uh our good friend Derek and I went to uh, redwood national forest and we were, we're just kind of driving around. It, It went from at the bottom, just kind of like hazy. And as we drove up the mountain, it went into drizzle and then rain and then snow. And then at the top, we were basically in like a snow covered environment and we found this old lodge. I mean, it was, it was clearly like supposed to be open at one point during the season, but it wasn't open then. And, we were looking around behind it and we found a door that was opening and I was like, hey, Derek, we should go check this out. So we walk <laughs> in and all the lights are off and there's, we could see that there were displays and things and we turned on one of the light switches and it was like, and all this stuff came on, all these automated, automated systems that started playing about this re, this pre-recorded thing about bats and <laughs> we had like what our heck? own little private tour of this lodge that wasn't supposed to be open yet for the season. It was very apocalyptic feeling and it was wow, that's awesome. one of the coolest experiences I've ever had at a national park.
0: Did you find uh, some ammo and a med kit?
1: Yeah, and then I found a <laughs> coiled up rope that I threw over a broken window and used it to solve a puzzle.
0: <laughs> Perfect.
1: One of the one of the coolest things in this game is the way the environment tells a story. So so many places you'll find calendars marked 2013 because that's when the infection happened. And I came across this grocery store with an employee of the month wall, and there were pictures present for every month of the year uh, leading up to September, including July, where someone had put a picture of their dog. And uh, the smiling face of the girl in the last picture, it served as like this very stark reminder in this world that the end came with almost no warning. Like all the normal workplace politics that go into getting your face up on that wall were just trucking along as if the world would never change. And then it did. Like that's such a genius bit of storytelling that could easily pass a player over if they're if they're rushing through the game. And things like that are pretty much everywhere. That is just a little taste of how immersive and amazing this game is. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's good. Now when it comes time to fight the cordyceps infected zombie stand-ins, the gameplay is very organic. Like the, the combat feels heavy feels meaty, like every enemy feels fragile and lethal at the same time, even the infected. So there's you know gunshots, stabbings, beatings. They all inflict massive amounts of damage, and there's the appropriate amount of on-screen gore. And the zombies come in a few different varieties. So there's runners, which are these mildly infected humans. They still retain all their senses. And the way these guys stumble around moaning in pain, it makes you feel like there's still a shred of humanity in there somewhere even if it's being mostly overpowered by the the mind controlling aspects of the fungus. And then there are these stalkers, there are these ambush hunters. They've lost their sense of sight due to the fungal growth overtaking their head. And, uh, sometimes they're grown into the wall. And when you walk by, if you step on the like fungal growths, they'll burst out and attack you. Mm. And then there's clickers and they're kind of like the the first really terrifying enemies. They're fully covered in this light, uh, armor of fungus And they hunt through echolocation, so you have to take these guys down through stealth attacks. And then there's two kind of like boss-type enemies. There's the Bloaters. These are guys that have been affected for decades. They're covered in this thick armor. You can only hurt them with explosives or heavy weapons. And then there's the Shambler. They're also these large armor-covered enemies, but they throw corrosive spores at you. When you take all that together, it's a very effective enemy roster that runs the gamut. It requires you to adapt all these different playstyles. And while you're doing that, you have this cool listening feature, which it turns the world into a monochromatic hue and it shows a faint silhouette through the wall of where enemies are kind of like, it's like a visual equivalent of triangulating uh, targets by listening. And at first I thought that seemed kind of cheesy, you know, it's, it's, it seemed like cheating, but then I realized like everything else in this game, it's an extremely elegant way of handling the simulation of a real world sense. You don't mm-hmm. have a way to really triangulate with your ears in a video game, even if you have right. awesome headphones. So through strictly visual cues, Naughty Dog has created this very clean system that allows you, when you first come into a new area, you kind of like duck down, use the listen button, and you can get a very a very small hint of where the enemies are, so you can start planning your attack, which is what I imagine you would do in the real world. Like the first thing you would do coming into a new area would be listen. I would imagine. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm guessing, uh, there's other humans that you end up fighting too, right? It's not just zombies. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> just like in most zombie fictions, humans <laughs> right. are the real enemy in this game, Brett. It's like you're reading my notes. <laughs> so something cool. They do the humans in this game will call to each other by name. So it really makes you feel like every single one of these people you're taking down. They're not like faceless trash mobs. Like we talked about in dread. All these people seem like they are real people with their own story. And as the story progresses, it makes you feel worse and worse about taking these guys down. Like it shows you, this story shows you how easily you could have been on the other side. Like these guys are not enemies because they're bad guys per se. They just haven't shared your storyline, so their motivations seem in conflict with your own. I find that to be a hallmark of good apocalypse fiction, like when you can start sympathizing with the enemy and you can understand that, although you have to kill them, circumstances could very easily have placed you at the sharp end of another protagonist's story. And there's, you know, there's, that's kind of something that I, I noticed with the Walking Dead when you start to realize how easily the story could have been following Negan's army instead of Rick's. Mm-hmm, and that was, sure. you know, that's like a, it's like a perfect example of how perspective can give you, you know, it can make you the good guy or the bad guy in a story.
0: I think this is the foundation of empathy is imagining, you know, having the understanding that somebody else has all the same insights and thoughts and life perspectives that you do just from their perspective like that's a significant realization uh whenever that happens you know as a kid yeah and
1: that's that's not something a video game usually gives you usually the enemies are just their their speed bumps on the way to getting to the next part of the game but after a while you really feel bad for every single one of these guys that you've killed yeah poor things it's pretty incredible (laughs) So there's this feeling of inevitability in this game. So the story is driven by revenge and revenge pretty much only leads to one place and it's a very destructive place. It's almost like a force of nature. And there's this awe-inspiring visual reference in this game that I didn't pick up on the first time I played it. But I think it's the perfect analogy for what revenge does to the characters in this game and probably in real life also. I'm not a big revenge guy, but I can imagine this playing out in the real world. So at one point in this game, you journey to Seattle. It's a big part of the game. And in the city, the river has forged this destructive path through everything that humanity has built. It's collapsed uh, collapsed highways. It flows through buildings. It cuts through all these great monoliths of human cooperation, and it destroys everything in its path as it finds its way back to the ocean. And that's such a perfect metaphor for this story because revenge drives the characters in this game it cuts through the very bedrock of their humanity and it pushes them towards this inevitable conclusion. And the fact that that conclusion takes place in the knee-deep surf off the west coast cannot be an accident. You know, that this visual of the, the river cutting through everything humanity had built and making its way back to the ocean, it was pretty much staring me in my face the entire time. It took me a second playthrough to realize it. And that really convinced me that Neil Druckmann is a genius storyteller. You know, this detail actually is what kind of started making me think that he may be one of the greatest storytellers of our generation. And that is, again, very high praise for a video game, which the stories are typically decent these days, but they're not usually up there with The Godfather, you know, if you consider that to be the greatest movie ever made. What do you think like how do you think the process
0: for a video game story writer differs or is similar to somebody that writes books or short stories or screenplays
1: what well, i think what would be interesting about it is that it's got you know an interactive quality to it so i imagine mm-hmm. that you are writing your story segments you know, you're writing them around the interactive portions of the game and also you probably, depending on the type of game, would have to write some sort of branching narrative as well. You know, it depends yeah. on if you're if you're playing or if you're writing like an expansive open world game or something more linear like this. I think this has a little bit more of a a tight narrative to it, but it seems to me like that would be much harder than just writing a book where you're you have an outline, you're like, this is gonna go here and it's gonna end there. And when you have all the interactivity built in, I imagine that really amplifies the difficulty of the process.
0: Oh, that makes sense. So you you probably couldn't just take, like, uh, I don't know, a a writer and throw them into the video game world. It seems like somebody to write good stories for video games would have to have some knowledge to the capabilities of that medium, of that platform.
1: Yeah, I would think so. Like, you'd have to have an eye for the interactive element. Right. You know, you couldn't mm. just layer on a Stephen King book over a game and expect it to be good. Right. Yeah.
0: Unless it was like a mortal combat of just like <laughs> different kids from his books fighting each other.
1: I don't think mortal Kombat has that great of a story.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. why you could, it's just Stephen King monsters, uh, versus kids in a oh, nice. super yeah, like smash like brothers a- style, uh,
1: Cujo versus Christine <laughs> just run over that dog with the car.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: So there was a, a ton of controversy surrounding this game. Like it, it all started when in uh, late April, 2020, a large part of the game leaked online. And uh, when it did Naughty Dog, Naughty Dog instantly started getting hate mail from the internet where they, you know, people thought this story was going one way And they thought Neil Druckmann was going to ruin their beloved characters. And it was all taken out of context since no one had seen anything outside of this leaked portion of the game. And then there was this review embargo after launch. It it stated that no journalist who had received advanced review copies were allowed to reveal any beats from the story or reveal the fates of any characters from the game. Which, honestly, a game that's so story-driven like this, I don't think that's unreasonable, but it does kind of go against industry standards for reviewing video games. And then uh, on top of that, this game features a lesbian relationship between Ellie and another character, as well as a character that is questioning their own gender in this world. And the internet accused Druckmann of tacking these issues on in an attempt to appeal to like the social justice warriors of the world. And it was a move that the internet viewed as disingenuous. Were you one
0: of these... (laughs) I was not Were you one of these internet trolls.
1: <laughs> I was not because that is not the way my brain works, Brett. Like, you know, I have no tolerance for the woke movement. It's not because I oppose fairness in any wor- in any way. It's because I don't feel that the wokeness movement is about that. You know, I feel that it's more about like bullying and pushing ideas onto the world in a very disingenuous way itself. You know, it's like, it's about power. It's about having an agenda and forcing it on others and if it wasn't sexuality or gender or race, it would be something else. Like these people, these trolls, they just want power and they find it online through cancel culture. And, you know, most things, wokeness, for lack of a better term, are fighting. They're obvious things that only an asshole would truly oppose in the first place. But, you know, the, the social justice warriors, they expect such a fine line to be walked. Like you have to buy into every idea hundred percent or you'll get canceled And, you know, if you seem fake, they accuse you of virtue signaling and then you also get canceled. I think about it's kind of like a corporate growth strategy. You know, you need 20% revenue growth every quarter, except they need 20% acceptance growth. And instead of quarters, it moves at the speed of the internet. And eventually you run out of things to accept and you start turning on each other if you're not falling in line. And I think, you know, These people have so much of their identity wrapped up in being woke that they fear the loss of their peers' approval. So it keeps escalating with everyone trying to outdo each other. And it's it's very easy to do all that from the anonymity of the internet.
0: So how did you feel about this particular storyline? Because it seems like you have a lot of respect for the creator. So do you think that he was just trying to appear woke? Or do you think that this was a character that he always imagined being a lesbian? I mean, I, I'm pro representation in entertainment in video games and movies, but I know what you mean. Cause I, I, I am much more pro sleepness than wokeness.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta get those Z's in. I mean, uh, you know, at least sexuality, it was hinted at back in the first game. So it was no surprise. And, you know, the first game is when she was 14 years old and you see her evolve and embrace it in this game. And uh, you know, these topics like gender and sexuality being included in the game, they're certainly a product of our time, but I feel like everything else in this game, it seems very earned and organic. Or organic. You know, being transgender is a real thing in our world, and there's no reason to think that it would just go away because society had fallen. I've heard transgender as uh, being, de- being described as, imagine you are the gender that you are, but no one believes you. Like, that has to be a very difficult thing to deal with, and I think that this game handles Ellie's sexuality and the, uh, the transgender character topics very elegantly. You know, since I hate wokeness, it always seems very fake to me when things are like that. You know, I feel like I have a radar for these things that's pretty dialed in, and I never once felt like these topics were being included in any way other than just to serve the story. Like, both topics, they come up organically. They don't derail anything in an attempt to push an agenda. They just both simply exist, and they're part of the world, and the world goes on. But because of all those things, like, the game got review-bombed. Like, hundreds of negative reviews on Metacritic right after it launched. People definitely had these reviews loaded up in the barrel and just ready to fire off as soon as the game came out, even without having any chance to play it. Like, they were trying to drive the score is down in an attempt to hurt the company since a lot of game companies earn bonuses based on review scores. But I think this being one of the most critically acclaimed games of all time, definitely put that kind of like petty internet bullshit to rest. So these people
0: were like super anti-woke to the point that they couldn't stand having a video game with a lesbian character because they thought it was too woke. This, I was just no no, having... no, 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 no,
1: it was social justice warriors like the protectors really? of wokeness, essentially. Yes. Because they, they thought that he was virtue signaling. So he like, wasn't walking a fine line enough.
0: So he was being too woke for the woke people. This, this is you know a what? hard puzzle box to solve.
1: <laughs> now you're starting to understand why I hate this so much, Brett. This is very confusing, Josh. I need this
0: broken down <laughs> in like a chart, maybe a pie chart or some graphs.
1: <laughs> you know what? I bet someone has done that on the internet.
0: Yeah, they probably have. I've only heard good things about this game. That's I, amazing, I, yeah. I mean, I've heard you know, even though I don't play video games actively right now, I still hear things, and I've only heard uh, top-notch reviews from this.
1: Well, I've got some articles here that are all about the controversy, which I will share, and it's interesting. very interesting. I think that the, I think the temperature of the world has obviously come back around to now support this game, but this was like right off the bat, this is what was happening to it, and mm-hmm. I think that's also kind of a product of greatness. Like when something rises so high, people want to take it down. And this game was, from the beginning, slated as being the follow-up to one of the greatest games of all time. And when that happens, people start creating a narrative in their mind of what they expect it to be. And if it doesn't fall into that exact same narrative, then they start developing problems. I think that's where the social justice aspects of the controversy came from. I think that's where people having a problem with what happens to the characters in this game, the review embargo. It was people latching on to pretty much anything they could because the story wasn't exactly what they wanted. And that's extremely immature and very internet of them.
0: You know what they say about uh, masterful pieces of art? It's it's better to be created by the hordes of screaming fans and annoying critics than to birth art from a singular genius.
1: (laughs) Is that what they say? Yeah. That seems like the exact opposite of how you want art to be created. I mean, I would think that I like, I would not
0: consider myself a social justice warrior, but I would think that a social justice warrior would appreciate having more representation in art Uh, for underrepresented anybody. I mean, whether you're LGBT, if you're black, I mean, I'm stoked for the fact that like entertainment isn't just people that look like me because everybody should have a superhero that they can relate to, or they can look in the mirror and, you know, feel like they could be in the MCU.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what you're talking about is logic and, I think most reasonable people would think that exact same thing. But I think when you're when these issues are approached from behind the anonymity of a screen and yeah. someone feels like they have an agenda that, that they need to push, you know, it's like it's the corporate growth model of acceptance. Like it goes so far eventually that there's there are really no other logical issues to fight for. And so, you know, this movement starts turning on itself. And I think that that's exactly what happened here. It was It's a tightrope, and if you don't walk it perfectly, especially if you're in the public eye like Neil Druckmann, then you get people coming out of the woodworks that are trying to assert their beliefs on you, and if what you're doing doesn't fall perfectly in line with them, then they're going to find some reason to attack you.
0: Right. So if it had been a straight, white, male protagonist, then people would have jumped on him for that. Is what exactly. you're saying? You know, yes. I'm c- very curious t- what you, uh, you know, what you think of uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier because I feel like they dealt with these difficult topics extremely well. <laughs> like, I definitely think that there could have been um, some assumptions. I feel like I, I, this was probably an internet troll subreddit or article that I kind of uh, remember reading about this, but it was about Captain America passing on his mantle and his shield to, um, you know, his black partner in crime, basically. I mean, they had this really well-established friendship as their characters within the MCU, but man, the winter and the soldier didn't like shy away from that. they, they dove straight in and I thought they did an exceptional job dealing with these like really difficult issues. So I'm curious to see what you think about that. Because you, so when you, there are topics that we're dealing with as a society, the best way to hash them out is
1: through art. Yeah, I agree. It like puts it in the the forefront of the conversation in a way that pretty much everyone can understand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I just think it's a shame that I mean the internet has brought so many great things, but I really Ask feel Jeeves. Like exactly <laughs> Yahoo answers, porn. There it is. <laughs> the top one thing the internet brought us. But I really think that like the anonymity of it is one of the greatest things, but also one of the worst things that has ever happened to human discourse and discussion of real ideas. It just makes it so easy for anyone, any asshole in the world to have a platform. And, and that, that's why I stand behind my... Uh,
0: I publicly endorse my internet screen name, straight white woke AF boy. (laughs)
1: 69, 420. (laughs) Woke AF boy. Oh, yep. You know, you wouldn't have to text 69, 420 on the end if, uh, there weren't already thousands of thousands of other people with that screen name. Yeah, 69,419 people. I know. To be exact. And just (laughs) what a lucky coincidence it came out to (laughs) the best number on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's wrap this thing up, Brett. Let's do it. So I've heard that video games are very hard to make. You know, this game is polished in a way that very very few pieces of interactive media are... I feel like the time, the craft, and the care that went into this, it's kind of like the equivalent of a marble sculpture. You know, it, it takes a medium that is resistant to being forged. You know, coding, digital sculpting, animating, all those things takes—they take countless hours, and they're impressive enough on their own. But then it marries them with writing, character development, and world building on a level that's never really seen its equal outside of the first game of this series. Now... What Naughty Dog has created is quite possibly the greatest interactive story ever told. It's all the more impressive because all of their hard work became transparent to me as I was playing the game. Like, I, I described this game as beautiful desolation, and that's exactly what it is. It's a destroyed world that's so believable that I had to stop and remind myself several times while I was playing it that humans actually made this. Like, they crafted every inch of it, and none of it looks created. It looks like nature took its path, and where it leads you is to The Last of Us Part Two. And I know it's quite the ask to get someone to go play a game on the recommendation of this show. The Chances are, if you already play games, you've probably played this game at some point. And if you don't, I doubt you're going to go pick up a PS4 at this point. But if you do, I promise you that you will not regret it. This is the kind of content, this is the kind of art that will stick with you for a long time. Like I said, I'm not trying to sell the idea of The Last of Us Part 2 I'm trying to sell the idea of games in general. If you aren't a gamer, you are my target audience for this. I want people to step into this world of games and realize that they aren't just time wasters. They are a unique form of content that offers an immersive angle that can't be had anywhere else. I feel they are the ultimate entertainment. Like I've been obsessed with games for over 30 years, and great games are always running through my mind. Even when I'm skydiving, I'm looking forward to getting home safely, because you can then go home is my motto, and then playing video games. And some people might call that a problem, but I call it understanding something fundamental about content. Video games are the ultimate form of content consumption. Like I picked this game up for the second time to prepare for this, and once I started, I knew that I was not gonna be able to stop until I finished it, and it's 40 hours i played this game slow and i cherished every second of it this is more than a game it's a peek into another world it's a monumental achievement human creation an experience like this is something that you'll only get from playing video games wow
0: there it is naughty dog left the last of us part two and don't forget folks you can use uh, our code, straight white woke AF, to get 50 percent <laughs> off an omni treadmill when it becomes available.: uh, <laughs> Don't
1: Will it give us any discounts for game stonks?
0: <laughs> I am not at liberty to discuss that. Uh, this is oh, not something financial I'm at liberty to
1: give you. This is going to go against everything I just said, but if you will never play this game, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's like a cheater link. Only watch this if you're never going to play the game. But uh, it it's a breakdown of the game, and it demonstrates the master class of design and writing this game truly is. So if you're never going to play the game, check the show notes for that.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to play the game. So uh, I just got to get myself one of them uh, fancy Xboxes or PlayStations. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in for another week of the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, it's been really fun, Josh. Thank you for bringing that incredible piece of entertainment uh to all of us here on the show uh remember we've got uh, all the social media things we have a discord we have uh instagram and a facebook at the content clearinghouse you can email us even content clearinghouse at gmail.com um maybe even use that email to sign us up for some weird internet subscriptions we're we're not your boss do what you want uh but do one thing Tune in next week for another great episode.
1: We'll see you soon.